Greetings again, everyone. We all know that we are living in very momentous times. We all know that what is happening globally as a result of glasnost and perestroika is changing governments, changing the shape of the globe very, very rapidly. We hear it all the time on CNN and news magazines and newspapers, but I oftentimes find myself wondering and asking myself, are we relevant? Do we matter one way or the other? Do we really make a bit of difference? Having to go out as I do oftentimes on these pretentiously called personal appearance campaigns that only last for one day, and having just come back from the Philippines and preaching to people over there, I'm perhaps reminded of that question and forced to face that question a little more often than most of us. And I've reminded my audiences time and again as I'm talking about the American imbalance in payments, our deficits, the fact that foreigners are financing our debt, that we are the greatest debtor nation in all of history, that if the Japanese, the Arabs, and the Northwestern Europeans simply did not show up to buy the inflated government paper to finance our indebtedness, we would be a poverty-stricken country with a destroyed lifestyle, something like happened in 1929, the early 1930s. We would be an impoverished country, and every American would be seriously affected. As I read about all of the upsets from China to South Korea to Uzbekistan to East Prussia to Poland to Hungary, where millions are crying for democratic reform, for greater self-expression, for ethnic and other types of liberties, for freedom, in, in a sense, even inside the Soviet Union, I see in all of that the gradual development of biblical prophecies that we used to preach about in the 1950s, 1955 and 6 and 7, of the eventual emergence of Eastern Europe, of the reunification of Germany, of the creation of the United States of Europe, of the eventual collapse and the occupation of the United States of America, of two-thirds of our people killed, of perhaps one remaining third taken as slaves, exactly as were the Jews, the Poles, the Czechs, the Hungarians, the Norwegians, the Danes, the Dutch, the Belgians, the French, and so many other people during World War II, and where Jewish refugees were herded aboard cattle cars and taken to the death camp. Sounds too far-fetched, doesn't it? There's something unreal about that scenario. It couldn't happen here. That's ridiculous. That will never take place in the United States of America. Having just been through Japan for four days and having seen those people resembling almost a fire ant hill that had been kicked over with such a humming beehive of activity, of such a supergiant of industry and economy, it's a little easier to believe some of the statistics that I've been reading in books like Yen, The New Emerging Japanese Financial Empire, and many other reports I've been reading about the supergiant that Japan truly is. I think all of you know why Gorbachev is trying desperately for reforms. It's because there is such a deep-seated economic malaise in the Soviet Union that if he didn't do something now, then another Soviet revolution would inevitably occur because people can only become so poverty-ridden and so disenfranchised and so wretchedly miserable, lacking any kind of a breath of fresh air in terms of human liberties, in terms of personal, social, and ethnic and religious expression, and in terms of simple necessities like food, clothing, and shelter until people sometimes take to the streets and they explode in violent action. Now, we see all over the United States not so much the birthday of the nation celebrated in the quietude of the traditional town square and mom and apple pie and the waving of the flag and the playing of the anthem as we did an occasion for the burning of the flag and for riotous demonstrations and for parades in front of courthouses and state capitals all over our nation and in Washington, D.C. itself because of two key issues that have been treated rather poorly by the American Supreme Court in the last few weeks, that of abortion and the right to burn the American flag. As I look at every bit of this, trying to keep it in perspective, and listen to what Gorbachev has said, who is the world's greatest globetrotter of late, 
Then I look at our president going immediately where? To East Europe, to places like Warsaw and Danzig and to places like the Hungarian capital and to East Germany, and I'm seeing all of these things beginning to develop. I realize that we're in a time of great unrest and of great ferment, and the next three, five years are going to see dramatic changes in governments all throughout Central Europe. The old guard, just as in Poland the other day, in Hungary rather, I'm sorry, are dying and passing away. And newer, younger people are emerging. Now, of course, solidarity is definitely legal, and even though they agreed that the next elections to be held for the first time in all of our modern history and our recollection since Poland was partitioned between the Soviet Union and the Nazi Wehrmacht, in 1939, a two-party system is emerging in Poland, and even if the people under Lech Walesa and Solidarity have agreed that he shall be a communist, communism is not so much communism of the Russian variety as it is communism of the Polish variety, meaning a sort of a nationalist collectivism and not communism under the domination of the Soviet hierarchy. Do you know why Gorbachev is trying for the reforms he is attempting? It is because they are trembling on the brink of economic collapse, and they know it. They have got to reduce their defense budget. Their willingness to destroy strategic and tactical nuclear missiles is a willingness to quit paying for a multi-billion dollar annual price tag for sophisticated weapons that they can ill afford. Let me read to you a little message from the strategic investment newspaper from James Davidson. This is a quotation from Lord Rees-Mogg of the British financial community and one of the very well-known investors over there. The greatest red tag sale in history. The Soviet Union nominally spends seven hundred billion dollars a year on defense. That figure, however, is suspect because it is based on a ruble exchange which is a false one. If one divides it by two, you come closer to reality, and that gives $350 billion a year of defense expenditure in the Soviet Union. Defense cuts could amount to 25 to 35 percent over the next two to five years, and that would provide $100 billion a year in additional investment resources for the Soviet economy. That must be one of the major targets of the Gorbachev administration, but it is surely not enough. The Soviet economy, in terms of world competition, is in steep decline. Additional investment over the next five years needs to be at least one trillion in total, or two hundred billion dollars a year, invested in the Soviet Union from other countries. And he points out which ones in a moment. Where will the second one hundred billion dollars a year come from? The two major saving nations are Germany and Japan. West Germany's savings rate is equal to Japan's and I might add there are many times that of the United States, and its export surplus per head is higher. That means that the 60 million Germans can provide at least half as much investment as the 120 million Japanese. Perhaps one should be looking for an additional 35 billion from West Germany and an additional 65 billion from Japan. What does the Soviet Union have to offer in exchange? In both cases, there are political issues to be settled. Japan would like a settlement returning the disputed, disputed I'm sorry, Kuril Islands seized by Russian troops after World War II. And the Germans would like an end to the Berlin Wall, an immensely significant move toward the reunification of Germany. The settlement of these issues would open the way to big investment programs. In short, the Russians have something to sell. The Germans, until 1945, dominated the markets of Eastern Europe. If they were allowed to, they would inevitably would do so again. The Soviet Union needs total modernization. Even $1 trillion is only about $3,500 per head if you look at the per capita ratio of the Soviet population, a modest capital investment for so big a job. The Germans would naturally look to European Russia. The Japanese would look to Siberia, which has vast supplies of raw materials, that the Japanese lack, including coal, timber, and natural gas. The Japanese investment in Siberia would, therefore, be self-financing in terms of Soviet exports to Japan. The German investment would raise the standard of living of the Soviet people and improve the chances of the Gorbachev program 
but would not produce the same immediate export benefit. The reunification of Germany is, however, now on the agenda. It will change NATO and indeed raise fundamental questions about European defense. It is probably less of a threat to the European community than to NATO, since the 16.5 million East Germans are only just over 5% of the EC's present population. The development of the Soviet Union is, however, one of the focal points for the world economy in the 1990s. As you know, for many, many years, the Pope in Rome has been calling for a united Europe, quote, from the Urals to the Atlantic. If you look at your geography books, the Urals are east of Moscow. Did you know that just the other day, Gorbachev in Strasbourg, France, before the French government, called for a United States of Europe from the Urals to the Atlantic? He is saying European Russia, white Russia, the Georgians in Russia, would like to be a part of it. There are a lot of old-timers in this audience, a lot of young, new people. The old-timers remember sermons in the 1950s when my father and I were shouting about a United States of Europe. Ho-hum. It's drowsy time. We've heard it and heard it and heard it, but it's not going to happen. Well, yes, it is going to happen. And I believe it's going to happen well before the end of the century. And the end of the century is exactly the distance away from this point in time that this point in time was away from the first Sabbath I ever preached under the auspices of the CGI out of this pulpit in 1978. Eleven years ago. The fastest eleven years in my life. I've never seen a decade in one year go by so fast in my life. It's been like two summer vacations. I cannot believe how quickly the last 11 years sped by. The events I am talking about are not addressed by Oral Roberts, Jimmy Swaggart, Jim and Tammy, Dr. Schuler, Billy Graham. They are not addressed by Robinson or his evangelistic association. They are not addressed by Pat Robertson on his 700 Club. There is no voice out there on television saying the United States of America is going down and they're going to be destroyed and taken captive and perhaps 10% of our population as straggling survivors brought back to Palestine at the time of the second coming of Christ. You can turn around your television channel in vain and you can even listen to some people who used to be my former college students who are on a program called The World Tomorrow, and they won't even tell you that. They'll chip around the edges. They'll seem to hint. They'll talk about Christian living and a lot of controversial issues. And just like I do, talk about heaven and hell and the soul and the millennium and where will it be spent and what is the kingdom and the four horsemen of the apocalypse and advertise the booklets. But the point is missing. The focus is not there. The warning is not going out. A witness is not being given. So I have to ask continually, are we relevant? Now, this morning we've been having a series of meetings of the Ministerial Council, and we have been deliberating involving things such as ordinations, the structure of the Church as a whole, Certain doctrinal considerations were at least gone over briefly. A couple of papers had been submitted. And we're talking about loyalty and responsibility and the interaction of lay membership to minister and minister to minister and ministers to the home office and all of the problems of conducting the business of a growing international church organization. I wonder if all of us see very clearly the distinct differences between what I just finished telling you about and everything we've been deliberating about all during this day in the Ministerial Council. They are distinct, and yet they are part of the whole commission to the Church. The Great Commission has never changed, and it is a two-part commission. I won't turn back and read it, but I've got the Scriptures outlined here, and you can read from 
Luke 24, 46, and 7, if you wish, or Matthew 28, 18 to 20, and the last few verses of the book of Mark. Go you therefore into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believes not shall be condemned. And he said, Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always. To Peter, he said, Peter, do you agapao, or agape, do you love me? And that means the kind of love that is a deep, selfless, outflowing love. And Peter said, yes, I phileo, that is, I, I like you, Lord. And he used the word phileo in Greek, which is like from which we take philology or, or very, not probably not even a good term, but the study of, of family and background. It means a kind of a familiar family camaraderie. Yes, I like you, Lord. He asked him again, Peter, do you agapeo, do you love me? And again, embarrassedly, knowing where this might be leading because of his recollection of the three times when he rejected Christ, Peter said, Well, yes, Lord, I, phileo, I, I like you. The third time, Jesus used Peter's words, and he said, Peter, do you, phileo, do you like me? And Peter was really embarrassed at that time. And each time, Jesus said, Feed my sheep acknowledging that Peter's primary responsibility was to feed the flock. And sure enough, what do we see from the time of the event at the house of Cornelius, of which we read in the 10th chapter of the book of Acts, that Peter disappears from history except for his letters written from Babylon, and possibly he may have been the writer of the book of Hebrews. We don't really know. Paul might have been. Peter might have been. One of the other apostles might have been. But Peter is from that time on not out in the forefront of the church fascinating, isn't it? The other apostles disappear. We don't know what happened to most of them, except James, the brother of John, who was martyred, and John, who died on the Isle of Patmos at probably 98 or 100 years of age. But the others all disappeared, and perhaps they went to Europe, to Italy, to Spain, perhaps to the Alpine Mountains of Switzerland and southern France, perhaps to the British Isles. There's a heavy tradition around Canterbury that Joseph of Arimathea actually established the first Christian colony of people in England. And the two-part commission to the church had begun. And when people were baptized and converted, they had to be taken care of. They had to be fed. The other day I got a very irate letter from a gentleman who sent back my tape of the Dallas-Fort Worth campaign and said he was bored by it. He said he'd heard this expression about me having the old dead fish thrown against me with maggots on my body, explaining that's the way you feel when you come to self-revulsion and hating the sins that have laden you down and you let out this cry of agony to God and you want to have your body and your heart and your soul cleaned up by the Holy Spirit and to receive repentance and forgiveness. And he just heard that too many times. And he'd heard me say some of these things too many times. I wrote him back. And I told him, I'm sorry you misunderstood. I thought you realized that when I go out to a personal appearance campaign, I'm not there to feed the church. He said, you used to teach me. I want to be taught. I understand his desire. And obviously, he needs to be taught. But when I go and I invite the general public, and I invite them over television, and we send out a newspaper ad, and we send television spots, and we send a letter to thousands of people who are not members of this church at all, but casual people who respond to the television program, and I go there, I'm trying to preach a sermon to inspire repentance. I'm trying to preach a sermon to get them committed to the work and the church. And so it's milk. It's the hors d'oeuvres of the meal. It's the first time ever for a lot of those people to ever hear me in person. And to ever hear me give a sermon, most of my television programs are more like a talk, more like a seminar or a lecture. You can't really say that I preach on television because I don't uh, stand up there and do what they do basically on Sunday morning and preach the way most people do. I try to reason, try to talk, try to reach a human mind. And I told him that we'd be happy to keep him on the tape program if he so wished, and I was sorry he misunderstood. But perhaps some other brethren sometimes misunderstand. We have a two-part commission 
to be fulfilled. I want to address the rest of these remarks out of the Word of God to all of us collectively along the tape program, to our brethren in the Philippines, to those in Canada, South Africa, England, and all around the world where members of the Church of God assemble. In the 66th chapter of Isaiah and verse 5, God says, Hear the word of the Eternal, you that tremble at his word. Your brethren that hated you, that cast you out for my name's sake. This has a very poignant meaning to many people in this room and many people in the Church of God International. Said, Let the Lord be glorified. Praise God, they're gone. Sometimes they said, We got rid of our garbage. They said, Good riddance. But in any and all methods of expression, they said, let the Lord be glorified, but he shall appear to your joy, and they shall be ashamed. Now let's follow along and look at the context of this prophecy. A voice of noise from the city, a voice from the temple, a voice of the eternal that renders recompense to his enemies. When's that going to happen? When is God going to take a hand to render recompense to his enemies on this earth in a physical way, a very real way? Before she travailed, she brought forth who? The church. What is this? The picture of a travailing woman in labor pains, and the very moment she feels the first contraction, the child is born. What is it talking about? Before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Who has heard of such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day? Then it's by extension or extrapolation, talking about more than just the firstborn who was Jesus Christ, but talking about a rather obscure part of the book of Psalms quoted by the writer of the Hebrews who says, Behold, I and the children whom God hath given me. Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day, or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, and the woman in Revelation, the 12th chapter, who brings forth the man-child, is also a picture of the church at large and down through all ages. For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the birth and not cause to bring forth, saith the Eternal? Shall I cause to bring forth and shut the womb, saith thy God? Rejoice you with Jerusalem. And Jesus prayed over Jerusalem and cried, How oft would I have gathered thee under my wings like a mother? hen does her chicks, but you would have none of it. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. And we see that that is, by extension, a type of the entirety of the house of Judah and all of God's people, including ten-tribed Israel. Rejoice you with Jerusalem, and be glad with her, all you that love her. Rejoice with joy for her, all you that mourn for her, that you may suck and be satisfied with the breasts of her consolations, that you may milk out and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. For thus says the Eternal, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, flowing, never-ending, broad, deep-flowing, a beautiful, crystal-clear river of never-ending peace. And the glory, including, that means all that can be produced. It means the riches. It means the natural resources, minerals, raw materials, that which is produced by the human hand and by industry of the Gentiles, like a flowing stream. It's talking about the millennium, the beginning of the kingdom of God. Then shall you suck, and shall be born upon her sides, as a mother would carry a tiny child, and be dandled upon her knees, as one whom his mother comforts, so will I comfort you. Is there anything more comfortable than a six weeks old baby at his mother's breast, just drifting into a deep sleep after a nice session of nursing. That's the picture God is giving here of all of the people of God, of the remnants of our country, of all of northwestern Europe, of Australia, South Africa, Canada, of England, of all of the remnants that will be scattered and will be coming from all the points of the compass at the time of the second coming of Christ. I am just putting the finishing touches on an article that deals a great deal with what I began talking to you about today, the title of which is World in Ferment, which is coming up in the next issue of the International News. 
It is going to go all the way through the many scriptures which will give you a test as to whether or not the Word of God can be trusted. Is it the Word of God or is it the fables and the fireside tales of old Hebrew sages? Is it true or is it false? Is it a series of lies or is it absolutely infallible? Because, you see, every one of those scriptures that I am quoting, and there are many, show Jesus Christ standing on the earth. He is here. It projects you forward to that time. The day of the Lord is over. The seven last plagues have been poured out. Christ has come down. He is standing on the Mount of Olives. And the very first thing he sets his hand to do after the destruction of the beast and the false prophet is to regather his scattered fragments of Judah and of Israel. And Israel is in places like Assyria and Cush and Put and the coastlands of the sea and Egypt. And there are descriptions of how God is going to dry up the tongue of the Egyptian sea and the seven streams of the Nile that men can go over at dry shod. If you will check your history books very, very carefully, you will see that at the time, first of all, of Shalmaneser and of later Assyrian kings, and even prior to that time of Sennacherib's invasion when over 600,000 Jews were carried captive, that those people were taken up to the land that we know of today as Iran. That they were never taken to Egypt. And you will also find that those people disappeared from history and they never returned, and the Bible plainly says so. Not one of them returned unto this day. During the time of Ezra, that was very clear, and Ezra put his footnotes on the Old Testament and collected the Old Testament canon after the regathering of the people of Judah from their 70 years' captivity, which didn't come until many, many years, decades and decades after the disappearance of Israel, 640, as opposed to about 718 to 721 B.C. I say that that is a test of the veracity of the Bible. Either lost ten-tribed Israel is going to go under, be destroyed, and wretched fragments of them will be regathered here and there a few from nations all over the world where they have been sent and brought back to Zion, to Jerusalem, after the second coming of Christ. Or you can't trust a single word of the Bible. You can't trust anything about, about Christ's resurrection. You can't trust a word about repentance, about receiving God's Spirit unless those prophecies are true. The same test could be applied to the entire book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel writes of future privation, hardship, concentration camps, even cannibalism, to be practiced by the wretched refugees of a massive global war, and he writes it against Israel, 121 years after Israel had disappeared from history. Ezekiel was a captive in a concentration camp. He did not have diplomatic immunity. He didn't have a passport. He didn't have money with which to travel. Yet here were prophecies against nations such as Egypt and Edom and Moab and Israel and nations all around the globe. Prophecies about the future, and invariably they tend to culminate in the time of the Great Tribulation and the Day of the Lord and the Second Coming of Christ. And constantly his prophecies about Israel culminate in the Second Coming of Christ. Read Ezekiel 36 about the rebuilding of all of the waste cities. Read Ezekiel 37, 8 and 9, the Valley of Dry Bones, the resurrection of all of physical ten-tribed Israel and the establishment of the new heavens and new earth following the millennium. And you see the time sequence of the book of Ezekiel. Whose responsibility is the book of Ezekiel? Let me shock you a little bit. Whose responsibility are these prophecies of Isaiah? Here they are, lying in the Bible, in millions of desk drawers, in motels and hotels all across America. They are lying there unused, unquoted, not referred to, not studied, not preached, in Bibles on the pulpits of thousands of churches all across our land. 
Those words are there in the Bible that evangelists hold up with leaves falling out of it, parading back and forth, screaming, shouting, perspiring, for all the world like a clown in a carnival show, entertaining people on Sunday morning television. But they are not quoted. Is the Bible relevant? Is it up to date? I'm saying that either these prophecies of Ezekiel, Isaiah, the book of Daniel, especially the 11th and the 12th chapters, the prophecies of Christ himself of Matthew 24 and Mark 13 and Luke 21, the Olivet prophecy about the tribulation, the day of the Lord, his second coming, either they are relevant or all religion as you know it is a lie. You either have to face the either or, you know, either they are relevant and they mean what they say, or everything we're doing here is a farce. Now, the second thing, if they are relevant, and if these other organizations are not preaching them, whose responsibility are these scriptures? Should not that be a sobering thought that perhaps no one else is going to blow the dust off the work of a man who died for the messages given to him and wrote them down on paper, projecting forward into the future, into the 20th century, into the nuclear age, into the time just prior to a nuclear World War III, and that whatever remnants of that church Jesus said he would build, of that church against whom he said the gates of the grave could never prevail, of that church to whom he made the promise, I will never fail you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Behold, I am with you always, even unto the time of the end. Would you dare be so bold as to allow your mind to say, you are a part of that church? What a shocking thought. How could that be so? Wouldn't you rather listen to the voices of enemies, of cynicists, of antagonists, who say, oh, they're just uh, a redundant offshoot. They're just a group of rebels. They're actually uh, sort of a dead letter. Uh, all they do is shoot themselves in the foot. They're just unimportant. They'll come back to the fold someday, be a nice part of this nice church that someday might be as accepted by the world as the Methodists. I, I do not have in my hallway leading to my office pictures of me standing there shaking the hands of Haile Selassie, Jomo Kenyatta, or Richard Nixon. There are no such pictures. I don't own any such pictures because I've never met those men. I've never had my picture taken beaming alongside of them. I've never received their accolades. But I feel that I am not wanting in credentials because it seems to say to me in the word of God woe be unto you when men speak well of you it seems to say to me in the word of God if they have persecuted me said Jesus Christ they will persecute you also because the servant is not greater than his Lord and the time will come when they that kill you will think they do God a service he says in verse 14 and when you see this, your heart shall rejoice, and your bones shall flourish like an herb. And the hand of the Eternal shall be known toward his servants, and his indignation toward his enemies. For behold, the Eternal will come with fire, and with chariots like a whirlwind, to render his anger with fury, and his rebuke with flames of fire. And by fire and by sword will the Eternal plead with all flesh. Is he doing that today? Why, he's doing it by television, and by the printing press and by personal evangelism, and by word of mouth, and by example, and by these latent scriptures lying around unused and unheeded in all of those motel desktop drawers. But he is not pleading today by the sword and by fire. This, then, must mean the time of God's dramatic divine intervention in human affairs. You cannot escape that conclusion. That is the time setting of this scripture. Yet. Just before those great events is this mysterious scripture that I could not have understood before 1978, 79, and 80, and 81. Hear you the word of the Eternal, all you that tremble at his word. Your brethren, 
They're our brothers, and we acknowledge that. That hated you. Why did they hate us? That cast you out. Why? For my name's sake. Oh. But you see, sometimes we don't understand that it was for his name's sake. For the sake of preserving his name. Now, I'm not going to name names or get into things that have passed. Let me make a couple of poignant points. I have never gone to an Islamic leader and walked up and shook his hand and said to him, I am here representing Allah. Nor will I, at the point of a bayonet or facing a firing squad, ever represent any name but that of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. If you wish to pronounce it in the Hebrew, that of Yahshua. Never will I represent Allah because I am not a spokesman for Allah. But Yahweh, or Yahweh, or Jehovah, or Yahweh Rofika, or Yahweh Nisai, or El Shaddai, or the great I Am, or Almighty God. For my name's sake, why did the early apostles die? Remember the time when they were hailed into court, or actually into the chambers of the legalists of the day, and the Pharisees were there, and they constrained them under threat of severe bodily harm not to preach or teach in that name anymore. And what did Jesus say? We read the commission in the first and second chapters of the book of Acts, that they were to go throughout all of Judea and into all the world preaching in his name the gospel of the kingdom of God. And then they were threatened. Now, it's fine. You can preach all this gospel business. You can preach about the kingdom. You can preach your doctrines. You can even disagree with us Pharisees and the Sadducees on doctrine. You can preach the resurrection of the dead if you want to. And that won't trouble us. But you just must not do it in this name anymore. Now, if they'd been accommodating, they could have said, well, that's no problem. We can do it in, in some other name. We can represent some other title, some other reference to God. That would have been no problem. The Scripture becomes even more poignant to me the more I look at it and realize all of its ramifications, that it was for the sake of his name. And they said, Let the Eternal be glorified, but he shall appear to your joy, and they shall be ashamed. In Romans, the 12th chapter, is the best message to God's church at this time and this place that I know of in the Word of God. And oh, do some of these scriptures hit home to many of us. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable offering or service. And do not be conformed to this world, we are not to seek the approbation of this world. We're not to ally ourselves with its legal, social, and political institutions. We are not to go to the courts of this world against our brethren. We are not to avail ourselves of all of the infrastructure of society in order to march in step with that society. We are everywhere pictured as a little group of called-out ones misunderstood, misinterpreted, persecuted, hated, a small group, not a gigantic organized group with almost unlimited resources, but a small group conducting a work on faith. Not by might nor by power, saith the Eternal, but by my Spirit. It is a work of faith. Be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man, now listen everyone in this room, listen all ministers, listen all ministerial candidates, listen wives, children, husbands, listen Garner Ted, listen everybody, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. How often do we shoot our arrows toward the moon to have them land in the mud? How often do our expectations frustrate us? How often are we disillusioned 
with our false evaluations of ourselves. That is directed toward the church. This was written toward lay membership in Rome. This was written toward brothers and sisters who had been converted a year or two or three or five or fourteen. It's talking about lay membership under the teaching of an apostle named Paul. Not to think more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. According as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith, realizing sometimes that is in different measure. For as we have many members in one body, and all of this is talking about the church, and all members have not the same function. Let me put that because that is a very good rendering, because that is really the meaning. We tend to misapply and misunderstand in our society in America the word office. We want to put a militaristic interpretation on that or a hierarchical and hierarchical interpretation on it. It should be function, meaning service. We don't have, all have the same service, the same function to perform. So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and everyone members one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, that means also inspired preaching, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, according to the faith that God gives us. On ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teaches on teaching. Let me pause to say that one very meaningful discussion we have had in the ministerial council is, I believe, by perhaps December, at the time of the general conference, and then the first of next year, going to very clearly, once and for all, spell out from in-depth biblical research and exhaustive writing from what the Bible says about the functions, not ranks, of the ministry, the differences between bishops and presbyters, or that is to say, bishops and local elders, and the difference between elders who are able to teach to anoint, who are responsible pillars, who are older in local congregations, who can be cohesive, who can be catalytic to the growth and development and the comfort and improvement of every local congregation, but who are not, quote, pastors, end quote, or speakers, who have not been so gifted. It has been frustrating for many men in the ministry, because for many years we have dealt with a host system, we have dealt with a blanket ordination which merely says, minister. And many people don't understand the difference in function as opposed to the difference in office. And we, because we are, I think, unable oftentimes to get rid of some notions that have stuck with us from the past, still tend to see a function as a rank. And I believe in the next several months at the ministry, in combined research and in camaraderie and brotherhood and with God's guidance and the Holy Spirit to guide and correct us, we'll be able to announce to the church that we can retroactively go throughout our entire ministry of all of the manpower available to us and explain to certain people that God has intended that they be a presbyter or an elder and that others are, in fact, bishops not an illegal word. It doesn't belong to the Methodists. It doesn't belong to the Baptists or the Lutherans or the Presbyterians. It's a biblical word. It's in the Bible, the Word of God. Now, it's merely an English transliteration from a Greek word, but it means a pastor of a church. A bishop is a, shelter, is a shepherd or a pastor of a church who is an overseer, and that is an exact transliteration, that means an administrator of a church. I believe that God will show us at that time who among us are the bishops and who are the presbyters or the elders. And I think that's going to remove a gigantic roadblock and help a lot of people to look at this scripture about not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought and perhaps be a little more comfortable with their calling. And we need that to occur. We'll appreciate your prayers that we can be guided and to make those steps exactly as God wants us to make them. And I really welcome that, that opportunity. I was very excited about that discussion this morning and felt, why didn't we have this discussion five years ago? Maybe there was a reason. Maybe it wasn't time. But it's certainly time now and past time, and I welcome that. So on ministry, let us wait on the ministering that God has given us to do. Or he that teaches on teaching. 
on he that exhorts, on exhorting. And you can all do that, male, female, elder, and child. He that gives, let him do it with generosity or simplicity. He that rules, like a sergeant at arms or a deacon or someone that has a responsibility for church property or socials or uh, responsibility in the office to get out some of the publications or to send our tapes out or responsibilities toward the poor, we were not allowed to move into a little church building we were trying to locate, and uh, Becky here was trying to work with us on that, and the pastor uses it every Saturday. Guess what for? They have a program to feed the poor. And I thought, what a wonderful use of a church property. They've got a kitchen, they have the poor come in, and they feed them on a Saturday. But they're a Sunday-keeping church, so the church is occupied on that Saturday. That's someone that is ruling over a responsibility. Is that not a ministry? How much of that do we have going on? I know that we used to have a very large used clothing department in the worldwide church, and we would send boxes of clothing to other countries, Africa and the Philippines. I don't know that we do that in the Church of God International, but I think we should. I know that because I'm unaware of any such thing, about every three or four years, if I clean out my closets, we call it a goodwill industry, which is fine, but I think they sell it. I don't think they give it away. And it would be better if it were given, if it still has some use. When I wear mine out, I'm not sure they got any more use. You know, anyway, I ought to probably just throw them away. But, uh, no, I'm kidding. But when we have used clothing and things like that, we probably ought to see that someone else can get some use out of them. He that gives... Let him do it with generosity or simplicity. He that rules with diligence. He that shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil and cleave that which is good. And it says happy... Oh, I'm looking at another page. I'm sorry. You won't believe this Bible. You see, my problem is that the bottom part of that page is missing, and I started reading the page below it. So up in verse 10, Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love in honor, preferring one another. Preferring that the other person receives the responsibility and not yourself. To those who are gainfully and self-employed oftentimes, not slothful in business, because God very strongly advocates diligence, industry, success, a good, honest day's work for a good, honest day's wage. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant no matter what the tribulation of the problem is. I've talked to people in recent months who have been there with a wife when they touch her hand, it turns white, no blood is circulating, and they know that their dear companion of 30-some years is going to die momentarily. People involved in divorce, people involved in lawsuits and court trials, people involved in police action and in indictment people involved in terrible automobile smash-ups and injury. And you really feel for people that are having that terrible tribulation. This says to rejoice in hope even in the midst of such a time, and don't let it get you down to the point that you quit praying. When it says instant, it means constant. It means never letting up, never interrupting your prayer life, for such a long period of time that you just don't get back to it. Instant doesn't mean every second or every day or every hour, but it does mean never cease that you continually come back to the throne of grace, as God says, and get on your knees and get to God in prayer. Serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of saints. And many of them do have need. And perhaps we are short in that. Given to hospitality. This is a tough one, isn't it? Verse 14. Yet it is absolutely at the very fulcrum of Christianity. It's at the heart and core of Christ on the stake. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and don't curse them back. You don't answer back in kind. But you bless and curse not. Rejoice with them and do rejoice when somebody is all excited and was promoted or got a raise or a relative came to visit or they had a new baby or they just got married or they're having an anniversary or a birthday. Rejoice with them and weep with them that weep. And there are those who need your tears right there beside them with your arm around their shoulders in a terrible time when nothing so much would help them 
as a friend. Be of the same mind one toward another. Do you know if this church, the Church of God International, with its clear-cut goal of witness and warning in the evangelistic effort, and its clear-cut goal of feeding a wonderful and a growing flock from the Word of God, could inculcate into our very character and the very fabric of this church these verses of Romans 12. We would be like that song we used to hear years ago, Give me some men who are stout-hearted men who will fight for the right they adore. Start me with ten who are stout-hearted men, and I'll soon give you ten thousand more. Shoulder to shoulder and bolder and bolder they grow as they go to the fore. You've heard that song. Very stirring, very inspiring, very courageous, but it's so true. Incoming mail growing at the rate of 20%. We're going on new television down in Knoxville, Tennessee. We're looking for new television all the time. Income, 12%. Not spectacular, but it says rejoice in tribulation. I'm saying that facetiously. And see, I've got you so sober you can't even crack your face out there, so maybe it's time, time out to tell a joke. But, no, we're very tickled with that. We're very, very pleased with that. We just hope we don't end up the summer doldrums and end up behind the eight ball at about the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. But I'm saying that in every area that I know of, this church is growing. When I went over and we had about 200, I didn't get the exact count over in uh, Albuquerque, I had so many people line up to talk with me, and many, many, many people were committing and saying, I'm going to come to church. Oh, yes, I'm coming next week. Oh, yes, I'm going to talk to the pastor about coming back to the church, and I certainly hope that they followed through on it. I've heard of churches beginning to be brought up here in places like Cedar Rapids and Des Moines, and 25 or 30 people here and there, and clear up to about 184 in total membership in Chicago, isn't it? Uh, can I think something like that up there? And men being added to the ministry, and in every way that I can see our publications coming online of once a month for the international news and four times a year, and we know that we're alternating that, and I've explained it, that is eight issues of the IN in newspaper format, four issues in slick magazine format of the, of the uh, 20th Century Watch, and we're going to commit and we're going to try to stick to it with all of our writers and researchers to one new booklet a month. We know we need it. I'm in there oftentimes looking around our literature rack just desperate for some brand new publication to get out there and offer on television, knowing that the phones will ring off the wall if I've got it. So we've just got to gear up. We've got to have the personnel. We've got to have the material to be able to feed and to offer these people. And we're just going to grow like, as they say, a mushroom. And there isn't going to be any stopping it, because it is not the work of Garner Ted Armstrong. And I said that out of this pulpit in 1978, and I say it again in 1989. It is the work of Almighty God, and if I'm not here tomorrow, it'll still go on. It's big enough now. It has enough of a ministry. It has enough organization that if I drop dead of a heart attack, the Church of God International is intact, and it's going to go on. And I know that. And that is a beautiful thought. That gives me a very great sense of destiny and of security. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. And that is merely saying to love your neighbor as yourself. Mind not high things. And is not ego the quintessential self? Isn't that the absolute basis of all that is self? Is our self-evaluation, our feelings of self-worth, our feelings of territory, of domain, of responsibility, of integrity, of reputation, of having that pierced or in some way impugned or ridiculed, which just drives us crazy. If someone thinks that his talent or his ability or his office is impugned, he can fly into a rage. I saw that all my young life. I've seen that in people in the military. I've seen it in every kind of an organization you can talk about. I remember one time, it was so funny because my wife wasn't funny when our bedroom burned off and our house caught a fire and all of our clothes were destroyed, but we had been waiting for weeks and weeks and living in a little back sewing room with the plastic over the burnt off living room and upstairs uh, bedroom where the fire had started. And we had some kind of an independent insurance investigator and apparently he thought that we'd gone in there and torched our own clothes. 
And we'd written out everything and gone through the fact we were, we'd been gone, I think, for about three days when the fire started. Uh, a workman who was painting had left the light switch on, and there was a light that was magnified through glasses several times to shine on a painting in the living room, but it was accessible from the carpet beneath our upstairs closet floor, and there was just a carpeted square of wood that you had to know was there, and you picked that out, and then you could change that bulb. But the switch was over on the wall. Well, when the bright light was shining in the window, it was hard to see the painting light up because the light was cut so that it was inside the frame. It didn't light the frame, just the painting. It was really a, a fantastic arrangement that they had. Well, he was there to do some repair work and some painting, and there were three switches there, and I guess it didn't matter which way because there were two switches, one over by the light, I think, and then one on the front panel, so you didn't know if it was on, if it was up, or on if it was down. And I think we've all seen light switches like that. Well, he must have turned off the living room lights, and when he walked out, didn't know that he'd turned on the painting light. And I guess it took all that day and the next night and part of the next day or whatever, but my wife and I were on a camping trip uh, with the Clarks and I don't know who all, but several families clear up in Yosemite National Park on a very rare occasion for us. And Herman Hay, remember, uh, uh, drove all the way up there with the glad news that your house burnt down. And uh, I'll tell you what, we turned in that driveway, and my wife took a look at that and wept like a little old three-year-old child. She about had me weeping, too. I'm trying to say, now, honey, don't worry. You know, but here our house had burned up. Well, this fellow had been dragging his feet and dragging his feet, so I just worked a real uh, deal on him. Now, I knew a little bit about human nature by that time. So I got the looking in the records, and I asked Mr. Portune. We found out that we had something like 24 different properties of all of these houses that have been bought up and all these buildings, and we weren't even a fraction the size of the campus then that it is now. And I called the insurance company back in Philadelphia or somewhere, and I said, I want to talk to the man in charge. and told him who I was, and I was vice president of Bassett College and so on, and about insurance claim that we had made, and uh, a vice president came on the phone. And that's when I began my little song and dance. I said, no, sir, I don't want to talk to you. I want to talk to someone that has some authority. Boy, did he ever let me know, was I talking to the right man? He had all kinds of authority. So then I lit into him about this fellow whose name was House. And every time we tried to call him, he was out. And I'll let you deal with that. I'm not going to touch it. But anyway, he was... Uh, very suspicious person and was acting like he thought we'd committed arson. And I said, we've been living under these conditions and we can't get an okay on this and the contractor's ready to go and they're there with the building materials and ready and we can't get an okay from the insurance company. And I said, I'm thinking about canceling all of these many, many policies and we're talking about millions of dollars of insurance unless I can get some action. I think it was something like 7 o'clock in the morning, wasn't it? The next morning it was certainly very, very early. There were big trucks driving across our yard and we heard hammers and axes and saws starting, and I mean, they were rebuilding our house the very next morning. So I know how that works. There are some egos that all you've got to do is just puncture them a little bit, and it's amazing the results you get. And I've learned that over the years. Almighty God doesn't want us to have the kind of ego that is conceit. He says, Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate, and be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, it's not always possible, but as much as it lies within you, it says, to live peaceably with all men. Avenge not yourselves, but give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, but I don't think you're to have that motive, you shall heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Certainly a beautiful message to the church. And I ask again to the church of God, are we relevant? Do we matter? Put another way, are we who we say we are? If you look at the shield, if you look at the corporate seal, it does not use the indefinite, but the definite article. It doesn't say a church. It says the 
Then it says church. That means congregation or assembly or ecclesia, called out ones. Of God. You don't see my name anywhere in that seal or any other of the ministry here. Of God. Comma. It happens to be international. I believe it means exactly what it says. And I believe that the greatest part of the work that we have to do is yet way ahead of us. To echo some words I heard in the 1950s, we have not yet begun, but it's about time we made a beginning.